If the history of the world has revealed anything to us, it has certainly demonstrated that mankind is a judged people. Not just once, but many times. God has already executed His judgment upon the angels, upon Adam and Eve, upon Noah. In particular, there have been judgments upon individuals, cities. In fact, even entire nations. And really, if you want to think about it, the entire world at the great flood in Noah's day. In all of these cases, every human, every even heavenly being is subject to God's faithful justice. But there are four judgments that stand out, four peaks. While there may be other mountains in this range, there are four peaks that just, uh, that just uh, abound to us. The first one, the Mount Everest of history, of course, is Christ on the cross being the sin bearer who forever settled the question of our salvation. He took the wrath of God. He defeated Satan. The first judgment, the first of four great judgments, is the judgment of Christ on the cross. Now, many people think that judgment, well, that's uh, like an Old Testament theme. The New Testament really doesn't talk a lot about judgment. If that is uh, what your thought is, you just haven't read the Bible enough, you haven't really studied it, because in fact, I would suggest that judgment is even more prominent and certainly more dramatic in the New Testament than in the Old. All you have to do is read some of the great uh, stories that happened in the New Testament, as well as the book of Revelation. When I was young, people would talk about Judgment Day, and everybody's always talking about Judgment Day. There can't, there's hardly a few months that go by when somebody talks about the judgment coming, and we just passed another judgment. I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? September 23rd, another Judgment Day that the world is supposed to end, and some are saying, well, now it's in October. Well, the fact is, um, there are many judgments that come from God, but there are four judgments that I think really warrant some deeper study. All of them would be worthy of our time, but these four, Christ on the cross, then the, uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, which we talked about last week, and today, the judgment of the nations, perhaps the most misunderstood Probably the most uh, people would not even know what we're talking about, mostly, unless you've gone to Bible college or been in a church where they talked about it. The judgment of the nations. It is, however, a very important part of Scripture. Jesus himself talked about it in Matthew 25. This is that judgment sometimes called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. I believe it'll be a blessing to your heart. Well, there were three friends talking about the end, talking about when they would face God. And so they asked themselves to consider this question. If you were in your casket and your family and friends are there, they come by, they're mourning for you, what would you like to hear them say about you? If you were there in the casket, if you could hear them, 
what would you like for them to say? Well, first guy says, well, I'll tell you one thing. I would like to hear him say that I was a great doctor of my time and a great family man. Amen. They all agreed. The second guy said, well, I'd like to hear that I was a wonderful husband, a Sunday school teacher, and I made a huge difference in the lives of children. The last guy said, well, I'd like to hear him say, look, he's moving. Uh, There you go. Well, I hope that uh, when you face God someday, you'll maybe have a better answer than that. So let's all bow our heads for a prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. I love you. These are precious saints, Lord. We all love you. We're eager to get into your word. We're eager to make a difference for your kingdom. Lord, teach us about the seriousness, the holiness of God, the judgment of God. Teach us about your great mercy and love at the same time. In Christ's name, amen. The judgment of the nations. If you want to get a head start, you can go to Matthew chapter 25. One of the two remaining judgments, there are many minor judgments, but there are two major judgments that are left which would involve unbelievers. The first one is called the judgment of the nations. Some have wondered if this is the final judgment, but it is clear when you, in a detailed way, study Matthew 25, it does not seem to be the same as the great white throne judgment. One of the main reasons, because the great white throne judgment, clearly, Scripture says, takes place at the end of the millennium, and there are no believers there, only unbelievers. Here, we actually will see sheep at this judgment. There's a different judgment than the great white throne judgment. It is very important to the great scope of the timeline, and that is because it is the end of the times of the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. While I am not a great advocate of the uh, dispensations, certainly the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. There does seem to be divisions in Scripture. There's never been any other way to be saved other than through Jesus Christ. The Bible says Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. You know, but he got saved during the period of the law by obeying the law. That's always been Jesus Christ. That was the whole point of the lamb being sacrificed. It was all a picture of Christ. They just looked ahead to the cross. We look back to the cross. And while I'm not a big advocate of dispensations of the seven dispensations that some seem to talk about, there is uh, very clearly a division. When uh, Christ was on earth, uh, there was this huge event that took place. And for some reason, the gospel began to be very clear to the Gentiles. And the Jews just seemed to almost, to a one, reject the gospel. That's because Jesus said there was a veil on their hearts. And uh, when, when they said, let his blood, when they looked at Jesus on the cross, and when they told Pilate, let his blood be on us and on our children, there was a veil that dropped. 
And uh, very few Jews people ever get saved today. But Gentiles by the millions, tens of millions get saved. This is the times of the Gentiles. I would like to be able to say that everything that goes on today for Israel has been very wonderful. And the Gentiles have been very thoughtful of the Jewish people and been very respectful of the fact that they brought us the Scripture and brought us a Savior, but certainly not the case. And so when the times of the Gentiles ends, which we'll see in a moment when that period is, when Christ comes back and touches earth, that is when this judgment takes place. And so in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, let's look at this judgment because it really says some serious things for us to consider. The point of the judgment. When does this judgment actually take place? Well, we have some very time-sensitive words here in verse 31. When, when, there's one of those words, and the last part of verse 31 says then. So those are very clearly, he has a when and a then. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory. That's when this judgment takes place. What is this? It is after His physical coming to the earth, where He is going to establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. Now, every four years in America, we have a whole new, um, or we hope to have a whole new regime to come alongside, and, and uh, maybe they'll bring a better future for America. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. The fact is, even at best, it's imperfect. All around the world, there are uh, movements that are replacing leaderships, and but there's coming a day, hallelujah, when Jesus is going to come, and He will be the president. We'll no longer have to say, you know, I vote for this man, or I vote for this woman. No, I, and that day, Jesus will be president, and He's going to solve everything in this world. It'll be a kingdom of God on earth. And that's very clearly what Scripture says here. Now, it says, when He comes to the earth with His angels. Now, we know that's different than the rapture because He comes for His saints. He doesn't touch the earth. He meets them in the air. But in this case, He comes to the earth with His angels right before the kingdom. Now, what's going to happen? He is going to establish and determine who will be able to enter into the kingdom. Who will be able to enter in or who will be cast out and bundled together like the tares. Now, if you'd like to see the timeline, I was wondering if I could have my four volunteers from last week. Are they here this morning? If you'd come right up here, please. Our four volunteers. All right, well, I might have to get another one here. All right. Come right up here. Okay, I think we're missing the second coming, but uh, come on up here. All right. Uh, all right. Here, oh, here's the second coming. All right. So if you will, you're the cross, all right? And oh, no, you're the rapture. Oh, you're the rapture. Okay. So you're going to point up, all right? Yeah, you're pointing up. You're pointing down, all right? And here is heaven. All right. So here's our timeline again. So the first judgment took place here at the cross. This is the first of the four great judgments. And at the cross, Jesus came 
And that was not just a moment in history. That was the judgment of all of sin. Thank God for the cross. That is the first judgment. Now, the second judgment here, the next event that happens is the rapture. And uh, right after the rapture, sometime between the rapture and the second coming, probably right before the second coming, we're going to have the judgment seat of Christ. That is judgment number two. Now, this is only for believers. Unbelievers' sins aren't judged at the cross. That's why when they die, they have to go to hell because they have to pay for their own sins. You can either let him pay for your sins or you can pay for your own sins. You don't want to pay for your own sins. And so the first judgment is there. The second judgment for believers is right before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm excuse me, it's the judgment seat of Christ right before the second coming. Now, the judgment we're talking about today, the judgment of the nations, or maybe be more accurate to say the judgment of the Gentiles, is right after the second coming. So right before the second coming is the judgment seat of Christ. Right after the second coming, we have the judgment of the nations. All right. Thank you guys so much. They did, a, they did such a good job. And uh, it'd be hard to train other people. So uh, I hope you'll come back next week. The point of the judgment. So very clearly it says, when the Son of Man shall come. When He comes. That's when it takes place. Now, where's the place? Look at verse 31, the last part of that verse. He will sit upon the throne of His glory. He's on earth. He's sitting on a throne. Why, this is the throne that was promised to David in the great Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, from this day forward, David, there will never be another person sitting upon the throne other than it's one of your descendants until Christ comes. Christ didn't get to sit upon a throne when he came the first time, but hallelujah, he's going to sit on a throne the second time, and he's going to go right into that kingdom, and it's going to be a, an amazing age. Everybody's going to read their Bible. Everybody's going to pray. Church service is going to be all day long. It's going to be an amazing time. You don't go to church, they'll throw you in jail, and uh, you don't read your Bible. I mean, you're a goner, and uh, the Bible, you I mean, read the, read the prophetical books and read the book of Revelation, you'll see the kingdom on earth is going to be amazing. Not without sin, as we'll notice, there's even a rebellion at the end of a thousand years. But it is certainly a fulfillment of Jeremiah 23. When that preacher stood up to the nation of Israel and said, look, behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, behold, the days come saith the Lord, which I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and justice in the earth. So we actually, we want to ask ourselves the question, when does the judgment of the nations take place? It occurs right after the second coming. Then our question is, where? Where is it going to happen? The answer, very clearly, it is going to happen on earth. This is when sins find us out. Is God love? You can believe very much God is love. But is God just? Absolutely God is just. In Numbers chapter 23, it says, be sure your sins will find you out. The Bible is clear. There's no way to escape sin. In Proverbs chapter 13, there's a very fascinating verse that talks about the judgment or justice of God. In verse 21, it says, evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. The fact is our sin nature is 
very much needs to be judged, and God judges all sin. The consequences of our sin are like a shadow. You can never get away from it. I remember being a child and running around and trying to, you know, run from my shadow. You never, no matter what we try and do, we can never get away from our shadow. It is like a sin nature. And so then the point of judgment, when? It is right after the second coming, the place, it is on earth, which obviously is different than the great white throne judgment, which is in the heavenlies, or also the judgment seat of Christ. Now, number three, the participants. Who are those that are going to be at this judgment? Is it going to be any of us? Well, let's find out the answer to that question. Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, and before him shall be gathered all nations. This is why this has been dubbed the uh, judgment of the nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now, this might be an extra note you might just add there. The word all nations could be translated. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. You know that, right? The Bible was written in, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek and parts of it in Aramaic, kind of a cross between Greek and, uh, and uh, Hebrew. The Old Testament was largely in Hebrew. So it was written in uh, Greek. This particular passage, the word all nations, is the Greek word ethne. Ethne. E-T-H-N-E. Now, does that word kind of sound like something? Well, it does. Ethnic. It sounds like our English word, ethnic. And so that's a person's nationality, maybe. Some people say race, a wrong term, but that's what they may say. So it means our ethnicity. So what he's saying here is that all nations or ethne, it is in Scripture almost always used for the non-Jewish people. Occasionally it is used for Jewish people, but the context here very clearly supports that it is non-Jewish people because in verse 40, God differentiates between those who are um, ethne and those who are my brethren. And so very clearly what he's saying here is that how you treat the Jewish people is very important. All the ethne of the world, all the Gentiles, all the people, how you treat God's people. And so what is this? It is the climax of the times of the Gentiles. If you wanted to write just a succinct thesis about what I'm saying at this moment, in essence, what I'm saying is the judgment of the nations is a special judgment, a special judgment applied to people who have oppressed Israel throughout history. I'll say that sentence again, just so that we get a working definition of what we're talking about. It is a special judgment applied to people Gentiles, specifically, who have oppressed Israel throughout history. While it is called the judgment of the nations, the Greek word and the context and how they're judged is very clearly, it is not nations that are judged, but individuals. Because we stand, as it says here, a sheep or a goat, a sheep or a goat. These are individual sheep and goats. This is not actually meaning 
an entire nation. Now, do you think nations will be judged? Oh, absolutely nations are judged. Oh, absolutely nations are at times uh, brought to stand for their sins. But in this judgment, while it's called the judgment of the nations, it's really the judgment of individuals in those nations. It is a judgment of individual Gentiles, how they have treated God's people. So who are they? These are people. You'd say, well, who are they then? These are people who, when Jesus came at the rapture, they were lost. They were lost. They had not accepted Christ as their Savior. And so they entered into the tribulation period. At the beginning of the tribulation period, every human is lost. Only lost people. And these people today who are sick and tired of all the Christians and all their rules and all their concepts, they'll get their hope someday. Every Christian will be gone. And this world will be just left with lost people. Can you imagine the sin and the degradation and the filth? I mean, it is terrible now. We can only imagine when it's 100% lost people. But there will only be 100% lost people for a little while. Because God sends two witnesses. These men will be preaching the word of God. I mean, they'll be out there preaching and folks will get saved. And then the scripture says, an angel preaching the everlasting gospel for the first time in history. God could have used angels from 6,000 years ago, but he hasn't ever used an angel to preach. But during the tribulation period, an angel will come over this earth and he'll preach the gospel. And then 12,000 spirit-filled Jews will get saved, and they will preach 144,000. So think of it, two amazing witnesses, uh, comebacks, uh, Moses, Elijah, whoever, they'll come up and preach the word of God. Then we have the angel preaching the everlasting gospel. Then we have 144,000 evangelists surrounding the globe. Millions will be getting saved. And they will evidence that, as we'll see here in a moment. And so, uh, what's going to happen? Then, at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus is going to come back. And then, right after he comes back, the judgment of these people will take place. And some will be called goats. Some will be called sheep. Some will enter into the millennium as save people. Others will be bound up and thrown into the fire, not the everlasting fire, but thrown into a judgment fire. This is D-Day for mankind. D-Day in our history was one of the largest single-day invasions. Just under 200,000 allied naval and merchant Naval personnel delivered 130,000 troops, can you imagine, along the stretch of the Normandy coast in France. Their goal, to try to get past the well-entrenched German army, 250,000 strong. June 6th, we just celebrated the anniversary a few months ago, 1944, it was called D-Day. D-Day was a pivotal day in World War II's history. It opened the way for the destruction of the Nazis. And 
It was an incredible day of destruction. When you think of all the bombs and all the bullets, millions that must have fallen that day and fired that day, a divine D-Day is coming for humankind. And that D-Day is a judgment. It is a judgment at the rapture. It is certainly a judgment of the nations. And that's what we're talking about. The point, the place, the participants, and now the plan. What actually happens during this judgment? Let's go to verse 33, if you would, please. Verse 33. Let's read that verse together, if you would. Ready? Begin. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And so two very clear, distinct groups. I would like to say there's all kinds of different groups in this world today. While there may be different uh, backgrounds and different languages and different characteristics and different people groups, there's really only two people in this world. It's not male and female, no. The Bible's very clear. It's either a person who is saved or a person who is lost. That's it. That's really the only way we can actually divide people. Divide people, and that's exactly what's going to happen that day. The Bible says, "Sheep on the right, goats on the left." Let's read verse thirty-four together, please, out loud. Ready, begin. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, "Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Look what's going to happen at the judgment of the nations. These amazing sheep are going to be pronounced as blessed. Come, ye blessed. And I will say this, when God pronounces that we're blessed, we are blessed. He commands a blessing. I love that passage in Psalms where it says he commandeth a blessing on his people. Nobody can stop me from being blessed. Notice what this verse says. Not only are they blessed, it says they're blessed of the Father. It's a great thing when someone blesses me, but when I know God himself has his eye on me, man, that's a great feeling. Notice what it says. We're blessed, blessed of the Father. And then it says, we are called to come. Come, ye blessed of the Father, come. Today we're told that if we'll come to God, we'll find him at a throne of grace and obtain mercy to help, to be helped. In this day, it'll be a throne of his glory, and still we can come, or those can come. And then fourth, notice what it says. It says, inherit the kingdom prepared, a kingdom for these blessed people, a kingdom. Man, I mean, imagine what it'd be like to be the king of England or to be an heir to that royal jewels. But it's not just a kingdom. It is a kingdom prepared, designed with each one, the thought of each one in mind, prepared on purpose from the foundation of the world, not just some accident, some last minute, oh, you know, guests are coming over, we got to clean up the house. No, prepared from the foundation of the world. Think of the blessings that God has for the sheep. Even though this judgment takes place way back thousands of years from wherever humankind have been here, God says before Jesus, before the world even began, God was already thinking about he was going to bless those people who were going to be his sheep during that time. God loves his people, and he saves them, it says, in a sense, from the foundation of the world. He is already enjoying fellowship with us. That's how God is. You'd say, well, how can that happen? If you've ever 
had been pregnant with a child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That baby may not be here, but you're already thinking about how you're going to dress them, how you're going to fellowship with them, how you're going to enjoy that time. You just, it's so exciting. Now, verse 35, why and how is this going to be? What's going to be the basis of this judgment? Let's read verse 35 and verse 36. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Verse 36, together. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. What? I mean, let me wrap my head around this for a few moments. So the basis of entering into the millennium as a kingdom dweller with this prepared mansion, the basis is works. The basis is feeding people that are hungry and clothing people that don't have any food and visiting sick people. That's, that's it. That's the basis. <laughs> that is exactly what God says. And I think actually when you read it and you compare it with other scriptures, you realize that what God is saying here is that the Christian life is often measured not in its big moments of sacrifice, but in its day-to-day, everyday kindnesses that we show in the name of Jesus. You know, some uh, preacher who can get up and make people just you know, just be wowed with, that's one thing. But you know what? I wouldn't give you too much for a preacher who on Monday can't be kind to his wife and can't love on his children. You know what? I want to tell you something. No matter what we're doing, we need to make sure that whatever we're doing day after day, it is real. It is genuine. Now, we may not be able to feed people here in America. You know, we have so many uh, programs, it's hard to find you know, people to feed, as it were. I'm not sure how it'll be during the tribulation, probably a little bit different. But the fact is, we can certainly feed people. If we were to take this verse uh, and apply it to our life, we can feed people with the Word of God. We can feed them with kindness. In fact, this concept of being entering into the kingdom based on these simple little works seems so remarkable. Notice what the sheep say. In fact, they're blown away. Let's read verses 37 through 39. They're just, they're blown away. Ready, begin. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? Christ is the king in verse 40 here. So Christ is going to answer these sheep. Verse 40, and the king shall answer and say unto them, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it to the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Wow. I mean, what a, what a moment. What a, what a basis. I know in my Christian life, I was telling a couple of people recently, I found myself, I find myself with goals. These are big goals. Their personal goals, their family goals, their marital goals, their financial goals, there's different goals that I have. While they're out there, what I find myself doing, and I'm 
grateful how the Lord has just, along the way, just kind of given me a, a sense of how to get to that goal. Because these goals, by God's grace, seem to be checking off. Not all of them, but thank God, many of them. And what I've noticed is, is that when I wake up in the morning, and as many times my prayer is, Jesus, I pray that each person I talk to today, whether it's the person where I'm getting my gas standing next to me, whether it's the person I'm driving, you know, there in the car, whether it's the person at the store, whether it's my wife or whether it's a child or a grandchild, whether it's somebody who calls on the phone, no matter who it is, here's what I pray. Oh God, please help me to be you. Help me to be you, Jesus. I want to talk to those people as though I was Jesus. They may never read a Bible, but I want them to f- meet Jesus in me because I, they're not going to come and hear me preach. I mean, just a fraction but maybe they'll know by my attitude, maybe by my face, maybe by the way, whatever I'm doing. Just And here's what I've noticed is that it is oftentimes those little things that help us achieve our big goals. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He was saying, if you want to know what the Christian life is, it is about those everyday feeding people, helping people, clothing people. And it's not especially meaning that you have to actually do those exact things, but it is the little things. It is the kindnesses. It is the way that we express our Christian life. Anybody can, you know, shout and holler and run around and get baptized, and then you never see them again. But I'll tell you one thing. If you find a person who decade after decade is got grace and mercy, and they have a Christian attitude, these are the kind of people, I'll tell you one thing. That's who he's talking about. These are sheep. And that's what he's talking about is going to happen here. Now he turns to the goats. Verse 41. Let's read verse 41 to 43. Then shall he also say unto them that are on the left hand, Depart from me, cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the fire devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was thirsty, or excuse me, stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Now the goats reply, hey, wait a second. Why am I a goat? Why do I have to go to the fiery place? I mean, I've not been that big of a sinner. That's basically what they're saying. I've, I've not... Man, I mean, you're giving these people heaven because of their, these little deeds they're doing? I've not been that bad of a person. The famous Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, one day gave a gospel tract to a woman, and she was offended. Boy, she was just ticked off. And she looked at that beloved pastor and said to him, you must not know who I am. And he replied to her very kindly, but very directly, madam, it is coming a day of judgment, and on that day, it will not matter who you are. And really, it doesn't make any difference who you are. Well, I'm, you know, so-and-so, you know, what if I, I'm not that bad of a person. Some of these celebrities, you know, these divas who, you know, say, you don't know who I am. The other day, I was reading about Alec Baldwin. You may know who he is. He is that one very disrespectful actor who's always uh, dissing our president. He was in New York City riding a bicycle on the wrong side of the street, stopped by the police, didn't know who he was. He got an attitude, and he said to the police, 
you don't know who I am, do you? When they found out who he was, they said, we don't care who you are. You're going to get a ticket for that. But, you know, the fact is, uh, you know, when we stand before God, God's not going to care who we are. And these goats are saying, why I didn't do that much bad. Verse 44, God's got an answer for him. Then shall they answer him, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger or thirst or a stranger, naked or sick and in prison, did not minister unto thee? Verse 45, then shall he answer them saying, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not unto the one to the least of these, you did it not for me. And these shall go away into the everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Actually, in these verses, it's very clear that God's main concern is not the sins of commission, but the sins of omission. It's not what you did that's so bad. It's what that you didn't do. You never even cared about Jesus. You never gave another second thought about God. You definitely didn't give any thoughts about his word. And how do we know that? Because you didn't care for his people. And that was the barometer. Now, this passage has troubled many people. It has troubled people because it seems like God is basing their eternal salvation on the basis of works. Let me clarify some things for you here. First of all, when you compare this verse, and by the way, if there's any passage in Scripture which might imply a works-based salvation, this might be it. But when you compare the great... uh, when you, a preponderance of the evidence, if we use a legal terminology, the preponderance of evidence is that when you take 300 plus scriptures in the New Testament that say salvation is only by believing, and you compare it with a passage like this, we realize absolutely salvation by works is an impossibility. Is an impossibility under any circumstances. All humans are spiritually dead. And no amount of good works can ever reverse that death sentence or somehow cure our sinful nature. There's only one cure for the the depravity of mankind, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. So you'd say, well, then wait a second. But then what is this? If it's not work salvation, what is it? Here's what we would say. While works are never the ground of salvation... They are, in this case, very clearly, the evidence of salvation. The Bible says it this way, faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean we're saved by works. It just means that when we trust Jesus, it will manifest itself by a changed life. I would say this, if you can look back over your life and say, I really don't see where my attitudes have changed, my appetites have changed since I've been saved, then you have, I think, a real reason to challenge the validity of your salvation. Our salvation should be proved by our life. The fact is, this is going to be an amazing time. In 2 Thessalonians, the Bible says this. It says in chapter 2, verse 11, For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. So let's think about this moment. So here we have all these people. At the beginning of the tribulation period, they're all lost. And I mean, for a few months, maybe longer, peace envelops the world. And people are going to say, see, I told you what would happen if we get rid of all the Christians. 
There's going to be a world leader who's going to emerge. There's going to be all these peace treaties. No more nukes. Everybody's going to throw their nukes in the ground. I mean, it's just going to be, it's going to be a wonderful time of peace. There's going to be a world monetary system, and everything's going to seem good. But secretly, silently, underneath the surface, there is boiling this great unrest. And pretty soon, the Antichrist will reveal himself, and there'll be this terrible event in Jerusalem, this this great uh, abomination of desolation, where all of a sudden, things are going to begin happening, and very quickly, a false prophet will arise. The Antichrist will come to being, and then they will issue a worldwide order, exterminate every Jew, kill them all. And somehow, as it says in 2 Thessalonians, the delusion will be so great that everybody will fall for it. And they'll, they'll get behind it. Kill them all. And the Jews will be the most hunted people on earth. Now, here's what Jesus said. During this period, if you Gentiles, and it's chronicled in Matthew 24, if you Gentiles, you lost Gentiles, if you begin to stand with God's people, if you begin to feed them and clothe them and surround them and help them and bless them and hide them and carry them, and, uh, and when you begin to do that, it will be an absolute evidence that you have accepted their Savior. He's not saying that works save you. He's just saying absolutely no doubt about it, hands down, this will be the evidence that you've accepted their Messiah. Though you are a Jewish, a Gentile, the fact that you have cared for my beloved people, and uh, some of these beloved people will be saved uh, people, some won't be. We are told in Romans chapter 11 and other places that all of Israel will get saved. There's going to be a worldwide revival of the Jewish people because the times of the Gentiles are coming to an end, and now the veil is dropping from their eyes, and many of them are getting saved. It's an amazing time during the tribulation period, and during that time, the fact that these people are taking care of them, it is an indication of their salvation. God is a God of judgment. God is a God of grace and mercy, but I think for too long we've accepted this concept that God is only love theology. Folks, I'm telling you, when we read Matthew 25, we need to get serious about our salvation. Judgment is real, and there's no second chance. You may know after I had surgery on my ankle, I've kind of switched to golf, and I've noticed something in golf. They have a little thing that golfers allow each other. It's not a legal thing, or it's not a tournament thing, but they allow each other something called a mulligan. Have you ever heard of a mulligan? Well, a mulligan is when you hit a bad shot, and they'll say, go ahead and hit a mulligan. That means you get to do a do-over. My favorite rule in golf is a mulligan, I'll tell you that. But I will tell you this, it, while it might be an unofficial uh, gentleman's rule in golf, it is definitely not a part of God's concept. No mulligans, folks no do-overs. I'll tell you now, we need to be saved. We need to make sure we're born again. And that's what he's saying here. Some people say, well, you know, this is, this is a future judgment day. Why do I have to worry about it? Well, the fact is, 
you and I that are here, we won't, uh, may not have to face that. Now, you may be lost right now, and you may be lost when the rapture comes, and you may remember this sermon, and you may get a copy of it and say, Pastor said, if I would be, I could be saved and I could be a sheep, and that may be a fact. And whoever listens to this someday, if that is yours, let me just remind you, you can be saved by the grace of God and love His people and accept their Messiah. But I will say this, really, for all of us, if we die, that is our judgment day. I mean, effectively, that becomes our judgment day. People say, do you believe in judgment day? Is it going to be September 23rd? Is it going to be October 22nd? I don't know. But the fact is, when we die, that is our final judgment because we have forever selected our choice. I remember hearing a fable, a Christian fable. There was a fence that a girl sat on and Someone tried her to be, uh, convince her to be saved, but she just wouldn't budge. Then someone come, else came along and tried to lead her to, into a flagrant life of sin. But she wouldn't do that either, just content to sit on the fence. The judgment day came, and she tried to explain how and why she hadn't got saved. And saying, well, I know I didn't go to Jesus but I didn't go to Satan either. The person who was talking to her said, well, it's true you didn't choose Jesus and you didn't choose Satan. But what you didn't realize was Satan owns the fence. And when you sit on the fence, you actually are, are choosing Satan. And I will tell you this, folks, we are facing eternity, whether we like to think about it or not. You know, the judgment of the nation sends a clear caution. Eternity is serious business. It's hard to imagine that two-thirds of older Americans have no estate planning. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of Americans have no will. They have no uh, living trust. They have nothing. Mind-boggling. You just wonder, what are they thinking? But you want to know something even worse than that? Is that people just have, I'm going to face God by the seat of my britches concept. Unbelievable foolishness to imagine that we're going to stand before God when it's so clearly written out here. God is a holy God, and without the grace of God, we will pay the punishment for our own sins. Would you bow your heads with me, please?